0: Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talk to Liz Garbus about her new Showtime series, The Fourth Estate. Her camera crews followed the New York Times reporters and editors covering the Trump administration over its first year. We get to know the personalities behind the bylines. Here is White House reporter Maggie Haberman. When I was growing up, my father worked at the New York Times, and I saw the news business as sort of something that consumed and didn't really give back in a big way. But uh, I just fell in love with the sort of exquisite adrenaline rush of reporting on a story. Garbus, along with her co-director Jenny Karchman and their crews, started filming on Trump's inauguration day and kept going as the Russia collusion case unfolded and the White House went through many upheavals. It's like watching all the president's men in real time. We witness how it takes a team to tell the story. In this clip, Maggie Haberman and her colleague Glenn Thrush hammer out an article on the resignation of Press Secretary Sean Spicer. You'd figure having 12 cups of coffee I'd be able to focus. Mr. Spicer has agreed to stay on for a month. Mrs. Sanders, she's still not a Mrs. to me though. She's Sarah, right? Including Mr. Sanders, we're to be We can't say she cried, right? She did though. She did. Why wouldn't Can we say that? We- we Why said- wouldn't we say that? It's true. And reacted. That's a little sexist, isn't it? When told- Why is it sexist to say she She would be taking over the top job immediately. Yeah. Can you look up Scaramucci for me? I think Scaramucci is a kind of a character in like uh, opera
1: buffa. Isn't it with Mouché? It's like yeah, operatic stock clown character of the Italian commedia. Name Moda. a stock character in Italian opera.
0: Garbus has many documentaries to her credit. She's been Oscar nominated twice for What Happened, Miss Simone, about Nina Simone, and The Farm, Angola, USA, about prisoners serving life sentences. She previously appeared on Pure Nonfiction Episode 5. Last week, I hosted her in front of a live audience at the IFC Center. We had just watched the pilot episode of The Fourth Estate. I asked her to explain how she pulled this project together in such a short time between the election and Inauguration Day.
1: After the election, um, I was thinking about how to use my voice to help make sense of this new political landscape we were facing. And um, a lot of different things kind of came to me and nothing felt quite right until um, one day, it was about two weeks after the election, the president-elect was going to make the rounds visiting the major news organizations, which... I've since learned is an unusual thing to do, but he wanted to go around, go meet with the CNN brass, go talk to the folks at the New York Times. And he started on a... Twitter tirade about um, cancelling the meeting with the New York Times that he had set up, you know, 20 minutes earlier because they had changed the rules. And the New York Times responded, you know, in their sober way of, you know, the rules weren't changed and the meeting was going to be on the record and we sort of have to, we stick by that. And then he sort of, you know, there was another tweet storm and then he, okay, I'm going to the meeting. And um, on that day, that's, it clicked for me that his... um, that you know his relationship with the press and the press's relationship with him was where I wanted to be, and um, that's where the idea was born. And then there were a series of things from me sitting on my desk obsessing over Twitter um, to actually you know being able to turn on a camera on January twentieth. That had to happen, but that's where it started.
0: So, what was that conversation with the Times like? Uh, what were the questions they had for you to grant you this extraordinary access?
1: Well, there there were many conversations. First, I reached out to a friend of mine who's a journalist, a writer for the New York Times Magazine. That's where it started. He said, "Eh, you know, maybe, who knows? Um, But he introduced me to Sam Dolnick, who is an assistant managing editor there who was kind of in charge of leading the Times's charge into its digital, potentially multimedia future. He was working then on launching The Daily, their podcast. And so I guess there was a a desire to think outside the box about how The Times would reach people. And even though we, I was never pitching, you know, that I was going to do this for The Times, I mean, it's clearly an extension of their reporting. Um, So then he listened and, um, you know, he understood what filmmakers needed. And he thought that maybe Dean Beckett would be receptive. And then I went to meet with Dean Beckett, which was, you know, pretty exciting and interesting. And I was surprised I'd gotten that far. And Dean was kind of like, I get it. It's a good story.
0: And uh, do you already have in mind that you're going to follow for a year and do it episodically? Or what were you pitching?
1: No, I mean, at that time, I was kind of like, what can I get? You know, <laughs> it's like, what what will they put up with? You know, is it anywhere from, you know, the first 100 days, which would have been one kind of thing, very different, but one kind. Of, well, which is basically what you see here. But, you know, as I'm sure you know, this is the first of four episodes. So this is just a quarter of the film. It's just beginning. But I also did feel that, you know, my experience as a documentary filmmaker tells me you got to stick around for a while for people to stop noticing you all the time. And um, certainly a year felt like, okay. I can do that. <laughs> and may, and maybe it was a manageable enough amount of time that they would not be scared off by such an ask. But in terms of whether it was going to be a feature film or an episodic film, they didn't really care. They weren't involved in that level of kind of create, creative brainstorming. And I didn't, even, I didn't know until probably a month or two into it that I really, you know, I had real access. Uh, there were a number of characters I wanted to follow. The stories were rich and deep and complex and exciting. And, um... And then I, you know, I, I, that I wanted to do do many hours.
0: Well, you, I mean, it's one thing for uh, Dean McKay and the management to say yes, but you are dealing with all kinds of, you know, maverick uh, reporters here, and um, and you know, covering some of them like getting up in the morning with their kids. And uh, uh, so, what was that process like? You know, not only getting the upper management involved, but but securing buy-in from each individual that you want to intrude on their careers.
1: <laughs> True. Um, well, I mean, I, we had the blessing from on high, as you said, but um, it was up to end, every individual reporter whether or not they were going to open themselves up to us. And we had a variety of, you know, responses. And people changed their minds and their feelings about us over the course of the year. Some people were very comfortable with cameras and kind of agreed right away. And others were kind of standoffish. And still others were sort of ambivalent, which was who was <laughs> Um, who was standoffish. Um, Well, for instance, Mike Schmidt, who you see in this episode just as part of a meeting, who's now, um, you know, his... Over the course of the year, if you followed his byline at the Times, he's you know had some of the biggest scoops of the year where he's broken the story where Trump asked Comey for his loyalty on Flynn and that Comey wrote these memos. And I mean, just the other day, the Mueller questions for him, just scoop after scoop. Um, and he was standoffish. And then by a, a couple months in, he agreed. And he's kind of a star of the,
0: Near the later uh, episodes. Uh, yeah, he really shines.
1: Yeah. Um, and that's all I'll say for now.
0: <laughs> okay. um, so the cinematography in this is something i think we take for granted but your camera crews you know they're really in there they're covering uh difficult scenes i wonder if you can draw out for us uh you know some of the craft that's at work there maybe if there's a scene or something whether one that we saw in this uh show or or in a different show that exemplifies what the cinematographers are doing in in, in this series
1: yeah, I mean, I think it took us a little while to figure out what our language was going to be because in the beginning it was just like there was a lot of run and gun. You know, you got to, we're just getting access, things are happening, you're going to go. But then as we were able to kind of, you know, establish our footing and have access sort of arranged and um, have more of a process, um, just from a production point of view, if people in the audience are filmmakers, one of the biggest challenges was what, knowing, you know, when to shoot, and frankly, when not to shoot. There was so much happening. Um, so we worked out with some great cinematographers um, a collection of them that we'd sort of have them on retainer, and they would trade um, so that they were constantly available for us, which was really the only way to make a film like this. Um, and you know, we established certain ideas around what we wanted this to look like and feel like. And in the New York Times, there's a lot of glass. There's a lot of closed-door meetings behind glass. Um, transparency is obviously a theme. So we played with a lot of those ideas in terms of guidelines of how to shoot. We wanted to shoot even when people weren't, you know, we weren't able to hear them. Um, and, uh, you know, we wanted a lot of close-ups and, uh, and you know, so, so sort of played with some of those guidelines because there were different people in the field working with the cinematographers and they had to have a unified language.
0: Well, along those lines, I also want to ask you about the editors. There's, a, a, you know, a, a group of uh, editors who are credited, um, but across the four episodes, there is a kind of uniform pacing to it. Um, uh, and t- so, can you describe how you set that tone with uh, w- with the editors, like having lots of people working on it, but making it feel like it's all the same theme?
1: So. Well, I mean, I want to acknowledge Dallas Rexer, who's here, who is one of my story producers. I don't know if other crew is here. Other people who worked on the film are here. I know Dallas is. I see her. I mean, I, we worked with a team of not just Jenny Karchman, who was my partner in the field and I'm producing, but story producers, Dallas and Nell Constantinople and a group of editors. And there was a lot of sharing of scenes. A lot of hands got on to different episodes. We did start cutting episode one first, and it did set a tone for the entire rest of the film. And there was a lot of handing back and forth of, of, of scenes um, and... You know, working in the style of, of the first episode that you saw.
0: Um, when did you understand that the the Russia investigation was going to be such a central through line of this story?
1: We, I understood pretty early on that that was going to be a really interesting place to be. I mean, it really, you know, could feel like a Jean Le Carré novel often. And um, it's kind of, you know, it's like it is if it weren't a real no- life, it would be a juicy mystery novel. Unfortunately, it's real life. And so but but it was a really interesting place to be in the kind of difficulty. You know, the White House correspondents are working every single day. They're covering the, You know, they're covering the administration. There's always someone with the president. Um, and that has a kind of constancy and predictability to it. With the investigative journalists, there was so much that was unpredictable but incredibly exciting to follow. Um, So uh, we knew pretty early on that those were some of the journalists we really wanted to pursue.
0: So uh, in the course of this year... Uh, one of the journalists, Glenn Thrush, winds up making news uh, as part of the Me Too reckoning that was uh, happening. You deal with it uh, in a later episode. The, can you describe, you know, what it was like when you became aware of that as as a thing?
1: Mm. Well, Glenn, you know, as someone we were following and, you know, even more so in episode two. Um, we spent time with him, we went to Hamburg with him to the G20 Summit and he was someone we got to know and when you're making a film about someone, about different people, you know them and often like them and so it was um, really surprising and upsetting to hear that uh, there had been these women in his prior jobs that had felt um, harassed by him and uh, were harassed by him. And, and then as a story, it was incredibly interesting because of course, you know, the New York times broke the Harvey Weinstein story, which relates to the Trump story um, in terms of the energies behind it. And then it comes back to affect one of their star white house correspondents. So as a story, it was very interesting, but from a personal level, it was upsetting. It was very disappointing. The Times
0: is reporting, and Harvey Weinstein does uh, c- come up a little bit in uh, in, in a later episode, and. You know, at some point that must have felt like the gravity of the paper was uh, shifting in that direction. Was there a moment where you thought maybe we should be making another film about this? or
1: well, no, definitely there there was a period of time in the times where, you know that was clearly the biggest story, and it was having, and it is still having reverberations culturally. Um, but we knew that this that the Trump politics story was, Important and complex enough that, um, and that that story is complex enough that it we you couldn't just kind of like, oh, we're just going to go over there and start shooting over there, but in it does you know very much relate back to Trump. I mean, you know, I think that um, the fact that somebody who spoke the way about women that Trump did and who had um, allegations of uh impropriety in his past and that that person went on to be elected president um i think it you know it angered and emboldened people to come out against other harassers in their lives so it did reflect back so in as much as it reflected back on our core story we, we wanted to to cover it but certainly it was one of the biggest stories of the year if not the biggest story of the year at the times.
0: Watching uh, these four episodes, I get so caught up in just my own interest in watching uh, good journalists at work. Um, but I have to say, it was a little hard when the fourth episode came to an end, and I knew that there wasn't going to be any more. Uh, and uh, you know, there there are endless stories coming out of the New York Times. Did, is there, uh, you know, is there a chance for a season two?
1: Oh, it's very hard for us. I mean, the other and my fellow, uh, my colleagues who worked on this film to like not be in the newsroom. It feels like we feel a little astray. Um, so, so it's hard. I think we we will do something more with the Fourth Estate. I don't know exactly what form it will take. We're figuring it out, but um, yeah, certainly the story is still moving forward.
0: That's uh, good to hear. <laughs> I mean, I know that uh, Showtime also does the the circus uh, series, and and they've done a second season of that. So. Um, we can hope this pilot episode had its premiere at the Tribeca film festival a couple weeks ago. I know a lot of the people in the film were there. Um, what was that experience like? What have their reactions been?
1: Well, it's interesting. So the one, um, ground rule that, um, the time set when I asked to roam around their halls with cameras and recording equipment, um, was that they would have the opportunity before it went, before we locked or delivered the film to vet it for any, uh, Sources sourcing information that we might have inadvertently revealed. Sometimes it's very obvious if somebody's talking to a source and there's a name, you know, we would erase that footage right there on site, but there could be things that we didn't know. So they did have an opportunity to screen it before, and the journalists themselves had to screen it because it would only really be them who could really pick up on nuances of revealing sources. So um, that, was a, that was a really stressful experience. I, I've often shared films with subjects before they've gone out into the world as a, as a courtesy, so they're prepared emotionally. Um, but this felt a little different, and that and that was hard. I mean, and they, they respected the boundaries, so they had seen it before Tribeca. Um, but I think that there were some hard things in there. I think that um, they are pretty used to being exposed. I mean, all of these journalists, basically, when they write an article, they're attacked. Um, so they've got pretty thick skin. So I think at the end of the day, they felt like it. their dignity was... On display, and that the process that they're so careful and serious about their process, so um, they felt. I think that they, you know, not it's not a blanket statement, but many of them felt that it was a very truthful depiction of what their days are like.
0: I, I think in in our current media cycle of you know this happened, this happened, headline headline, that sometimes it's hard to get a big picture of, uh, of what's going on, or you can be so distracted by, you know, the crazy tweet that went out this morning or the person who's just been fired. And that phenomenon uh, comes up in, in a later episode where some of the journalists are talking about, you know, we need to be covering policies and how those policies are impacting people. I, I wonder for you in, in telling this story, if you you know felt that tension between, you know, the drama of who's in and who's out versus the kind of tougher-to-tell story about how policy affects the lives of Americans.
1: Yeah, no, we we grapple with that a lot, and... um I think, you know, if you set a filmmaker loose in the New York Times, you could come back with, you know, they do 300 stories a day. So you could come back with a whole bunch of different films. And we had to apply a lens to this. Like we had to we had to focus because otherwise it would be all over the place. There had to be characters that you would return to. So, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of, you know, there are a lot there are a lot of characters who are not in the final film. There are a lot of shoots we did out in the country, which are not in the final film. Um, We did focus on Washington. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, um, in some ways that's a limitation, right? We're, we're not, but we're also not claiming to be a film about everything that happened this year. I mean, that would be a very different film. And I think, um, you know, in terms of foreign policy and North Korea and Iran, I mean, there's so many tentacles. So we, we had, you know, we did focus on Washington and politics and, um, you know, I know there will be a lot of other films on a lot of these other issues.
0: I want to thank Liz Garbus for speaking with me. Her four-part series, The Fourth Estate, is now streaming on Showtime. Thanks to our team, series producer, Sarah Modo, sound mixer, Tom Micah, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. I invite you to listen to our short-form podcast, Documentary of the Week, from WNYC. You'll find over 160 documentary recommendations. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.